Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. And last week we've been talking a little bit about the last part, which is the relationship with the laws. And I want to explain a little bit of what I mean by that. Uh, as many of you know, uh, this idea of lostness is something that I think all of us can relate to, regardless of whether you're a believer in Jesus Christ or not. Uh, one of the things that we say in our church is that found people find people. Because all of us at one point of our lives were lost. And then God reached out to us and found us in our lostness, in our sin. And now because we have been found, there's so much joy as we experience this good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the reason why now we want to go out and find other people as they're struggling with different things in life and to give them hope and belief that God is doing something and wants to do something in their lives. And so this is the reason why we want to focus in on this. And the reason I think also that I wanted to focus in on this is because many of you who are believers in our church, I think one of the things we have to confess is that we have not been a very good witness, whether it's at work whether it's in our classrooms, whether it's our roommate situation, our families. When we think about our lives, we're not the best witnesses for Jesus Christ. And that's why a lot of people who don't go to church, they look at Christians as very judgmental, very hypocritical. They also look at Christians as just people who are a little bit weird because they're kind of in their slow, uh, their enclave of their friends, have this weird language. They talk about different things that you, a lot of people in the world have no clue what you're talking about. And this is, this is not a, I'm not trying to condemn any of us who are believers here, but the reality is this. I think in many ways, the church, we have lost our witness to be able to tell a lost world that Jesus Christ is the only way to find hope and redemption and find this love that they're looking for. And that's why some of you who might be here that you're not a believer or you're not a believer yet, or some of you are who are just seeking, uh, I just wanted to at least recognize that, knowing that for many of us who are believers, we have not been a good witness of Jesus Christ. But can I also give a little caveat to that? The reason why we need Jesus is because there's only one person in this world who lived a perfect life, and that's Jesus Christ, which means that every single one of us who are believers, we fall short. And so we will be hypocritical, we will be judgmental at times, and then we will do things that fall short of expectations. And that much more, it reminds us how much we need Jesus in our lives and how much we need the gospel, which is the good news. I wanted to just kind of continue in this whole thought as we studied last week. We talked about the importance of a worldview. Whether you like it or not, every single one of you in this room, you are operating on some kind of worldview. Some of you might be asking, what is a worldview? We talked about it last week, that a worldview is how you perceive the world and how you then determine how you will live your life. It's going to answer some of those big questions, such as, uh, why am I here on this earth? Which is oftentimes a question of origin. We're going to ask questions uh, such as, uh, what significance do I have here? What is my purpose here? So we're, it's, it's, it's a question of meaning. There are many of us who are looking for meaning in our lives. 
Some of us, another question is, why is there evil and suffering? This is a question of morality, and we're going to be covering this, and we're going to be talking about this. And then also, what will happen to me when I die, which is about destiny. These, these four questions have been asked throughout the beginning of time, throughout history. What is my purpose? Why am I here? Why am I going through what I'm going through? And so we continued and we said, well, the Bible, as we suggested, can give the answers to some of those life questions. But we have to answer this bigger question, which is, is the Bible credible and can we trust it? And if you remember, if you were here last week, we talked about that you could bank on it, that the Bible is credible and there's overwhelming evidence of the veracity of the Bible and the scriptures that we have today. I used the acronym BANK. I talked about the biblical prophecies and all these prophecies that were given, how it have comes true. they have come true even throughout history. I also talked about the ar archaeological findings and discoveries. We talked about that. Even just recently, this past week, there was a finding uh, that was discovered in Israel. And they're finding new things that are connecting things to the Bible, even things thousands of years old. And that's why the amazing part of the Bible that we can bank on is that it's not just a writing, but there's history behind it. We also talked about the number of manuscripts, that the Bible has the most number of manuscripts, original manuscripts that were written more than any other writings in history, in the world. But the ironic thing is that some of you trust in these different writings where they don't even have that many copies. And what they found out in terms of a variant, it was only 99.4 some percent accurate, or shall I say like 0.6 of differences, of variance. But the, the what similarities of it and the consistency of it is 99.4%. That's a high percentage. And then we talked about the, how it's knitted together, this knitted consistency. And how 40 different authors wrote this book. And I said, if we were to even have maybe 10 or 20 of you take out a piece of paper and say, write whatever you want to write on, the probability of all 20 of you writing the same thing will be almost impossible. But 40 different authors from all different backgrounds, from physicians to shepherds to carpenters and fishermen to kings and prophets and all these different types of people with different backgrounds over a 1,500-year period as they wrote this book, there's one message, and that is the message of redemption and God's history that he is sending the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who will save the world. And that is phenomenal. That's why the Bible is what we use as our reference as we talk about these different topics. Today I'm going to go into this talk about this one question that I think, if you've ever just lived on this earth, I think all of us have at one point thought about it, and I could be pretty certain of it. Unless you are so isolated from the world, and you are totally oblivious to what is going on, you don't check the news, you don't see what's happening around the world, this question is a question that almost every single person have asked or will ask as they get older. And the question is this, if God is so good, and he's so loving, then why is there so much evil and suffering in this world? 
you don't have to raise your hand, but I'm wondering how many of you have actually asked that question. And I'm wondering if you're asking even right now because you're going through something that's very difficult. Maybe it's a relational issue. Maybe it could be a death of a loved one. Maybe some of you are facing incredible trials in your life. You're thinking, I, my friend is telling me about how God is good, but if God is that good and he's that powerful, then why does he allow evil and suffering to happen in this world? Can he stop it? If he can't, then he's not all powerful. If he just allows it, then is he really loving? These are the type of questions. So what I'm going to do today, and I'm going to do a little bit of, uh, after I teach, we're going to have kind of like a pan Pastor Bo and I will answer some of the questions that you submitted. And as we talk through it, I'm hoping, once again, I want to make sure we're clear on this. We're not going to answer all your questions, nor will our answers be, for some of you, very self, it won't be sufficient enough. That's why we've been encouraging you. We're just giving you broad strokes. Just literally on a canvas, we're just putting paint on it. And some of you have to go a little bit more into the details. And that's where we gave you the resource so that you could follow along. Or you could do the research and follow along in that way. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to approach it from two angles. And the two angles are this. First of all, I want to talk about this idea to answer this question of if God is so good, if God is so loving and he's powerful, why does he allow evil and suffering to happen in this world? Is that I need to first present to you the character of God. That's the first thing that I'm going to be sharing with you. The second thing I want to share with you is the consideration for suffering. Like why is there suffering? Is there any purpose behind suffering? So I want to talk a little bit about the consideration that maybe some of you have not thought about when it comes to pain and suffering in this world. So once again, those two angles, the character of God, and then I want to talk about the consideration for suffering. So let me first go into this character of God. I think oftentimes atheists or even people who are skeptics, if some of you are skeptics. Now remember, there was a difference between a skeptic and a cynic. A person who is cynical is no matter how much the truth is before them, because oftentimes cynical people have been hurt. There's insecurities in their lives. So even you present all the evidence before them, they will still deny. So they're not seeking for truth. Skeptics, on the other hand, they, they are seeking for truth. That's why they're asking questions. And so whether it's an atheist who genuinely are seeking or a skeptic who might have some questions to find out the truth, one of the things you will notice is that they have a hard time believing in this fact that God is a loving God. And how in the world can a God who is loving and all-powerful also allow this kind of stuff that's happening in the world? So before we get into that, I want to quickly talk about and establish that we, so that we can be confident that God exists. I know it seems very basic, but we need to at least start there so then we can build on that argument with other things. Once again, this is going to be a flyby. I could take each one of these and make a whole three-part sermon. So when I say I'm going to do this in like a minute or so, it's like a flyby. So let me just say there are four basic traditional arguments for the existence of God. Uh, whenever you look at uh, philosophical books, you talk about some of these people who have wrote on these philosophical thoughts. These are usually the four traditional views and arguments 
for the existence of God. The first one is the cosmological argument. What is this argument? The argument is pretty much simple as this. It simply means that everything in this world has to have a first cause. That means that something started something. You cannot start something without nothing. So therefore, you'd have to keep on going all the way back, and then you realize that if whatever that first cause is, then that is a thing that will argue that there is an existence of God. Now, some of you are like, how is that so? One of the, thing, one of the things that I tell people is that whether you believe in the Big Bang Theory or you believe in God, listen to me carefully, both of them require faith. you got to think about that for a moment. Whether you are a Big Bang evolutionist or you are a believer in God, both of them require faith. I had a really good conversation when I was in China, and there was a university student, a Chinese university student, uh, just grew up in the communist kind of atheistic uh, government, so he didn't have an idea or a concept of God. And we were just talking, and he pretty much grew up in this environment that they taught the evolution. And so we started talking, and I could tell he was a pretty bright person. We were talking about just science and different things, and I wanted to talk about other things, but he was going at it, so I said, okay. So with the translator, uh, I was kind of conversing with this person, and he says, I don't believe in this God because there's no way that God, this God exists. He goes, it makes more rational sense that if you believe in this evolution because you see scientific proof for that. So then I would say something like this, and I, I told him, I go, well, then who, who created that? And then he was explaining. I got him to go all the way back to the Big Bang. And then the million-dollar question, who started the Big Bang? It's not the Korean group now. Who, 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 who started the Big Bang? And he sat there and he was thinking, he goes, yeah. And I said, yeah, something had to kind of start the whole atoms and coming together. And he had really nothing much to say for that. And I said, do you understand why it takes faith to believe in this Big Bang? Because something came out of nothing, but you believe that it came from this Big Bang. And I said, in the same way, I believe that God is the first cause, and he started all things. And I began to chart out for him what life will be like, because both requires faith. And I said, one will lead to, and I started asking about destiny, about end of your life, what's going to happen to you, how your life is almost like a predetermined or just almost as if there's no purpose in it. It's almost as if something wound, uh, wound you up and you were just going and just living life and you're going to die one day. And so I was trying to help him to understand in life, something causes something else, the first cause. And I proposed to him, and as I'm proposing to you, that that person is God. The second traditional argument is the teleological argument. The teleological argument, teleos in the Greek means the end or kind of like this idea of design. And so this argument is related to design, and let me try to explain a little bit. It says the universe, when you look at it, there has to be a designer because you see the intricacies of the things of this world. It must have had some intellectual and some kind of purposeful designer or creator that brought all this to this point. And when you think about just the beauty of everything that's created, like I said, I can't go into all the details, but if we think about the human body, you talk to any, anyone in medical school, just the, the, just the complex nature of the human body. 
I mean, there's there's science that's backing things up. Even if the earth axis is just one degree off, we will either burn or we'll freeze to death. To think that everything that we see around us, there's some kind of design to it. I mean, think about some of the electronic equipments we have. Someone designed that so that we can use it. So somebody must have designed us and created us. And we see that in Scripture in Psalm 139. The next argument is the ontological argument that pretty much argues, and it's about the being, the B-E-I-N-G, the being. It simply means the greatest possible being must be a being that actually exists or otherwise it would not be the greatest. So think about the greatest thing, the greatest dim sum you could think of. You could always think of one that's better. And so there must be some kind of higher being that's the best, the greatest. And uh, a lot of people have arguments against this, but it's just a classical argument for the existence of God. That greatest being is God. The last one is the moral argument. This is where we're going to focus in a little bit. And I hope this will help you to understand as we talk about the problem of evil and suffering in this world. The moral argument goes simply as this, that there is this universal moral law. What is this universal moral law? Well, it says that it's innate in us, it's within us, that we just know. For instance, when someone says, I am going to rape that child, like that seven-year-old child, a pedophile, Let's say it's a pedophile. Like something inside of us, whether you are a believer or not, says that's wrong. When someone kills somebody, something inside of you, whether you're religious or not, something tells you, wait, that's not right. You're taking someone's life. So the moral argument is simply this. In order for you to know something is right or wrong, there has to be some kind of moral law. Now, for it to be a moral law, there has to be a moral giver because there has to be someone who's a standard who says this is the law. Because if each one of us will give our own laws on what we think is right and wrong, it's going to be completely chaos. So for there to be something inside of us that says that is wrong, then that means that there is against what is good. So God, who is good, is the one who gives the moral law. And because... God is the giver of this moral law, and we have the moral law within our hearts. It tells us that there is God. Now, like I said, I don't think I've done it justice, but I'm just giving you just the headlines. What I'm going to do is I'm going to show you a video that will explain a little bit more in detail about this idea of this moral argument, not only of the existence of God, but I want to build off that and say if this God does exist, and that this God is this type of God, then how can evil and suffering begin to happen? So let's watch this together. I mean, simply, there's an objective moral value that supersedes your opinion, what you think is right or wrong. It's a standard. And because that exists, we know that that comes from God, who is the ultimate moral law giver. I like what Dr. Wayne Grudem said in his book, Systematic Theology. He summarizes these arguments that I shared, the cosmological, the ontological, the teleological uh, argument, the moral argument. And he says this. He says, the universe does have God as its cause, and it does show evidence of purposeful design. 
and God does exist as a being greater than which nothing can be imagined. And God has given us a sense of right and wrong and a sense that judgment is coming someday. But you know what the sad fact is? I think because of our spiritual blindness and our pride and maybe some of our hurt that we refuse to because we're so protective of ourselves that we literally choose to believe as if God doesn't exist. Listen to what the Bible says, the most credible book in the history of this world. It says this in Romans chapter 1, verse 19 through 22. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. And if you could read the yellow section with me out loud, listen to what it says. They, referring to those who are far from God, who are atheists, maybe people who don't want to worship Jesus Christ, it says this, they know the truth about God because He has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they, had, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship Him as God or even give thanks. And they began to think of foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused, claiming to be wise. They instead became utter fools. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been out in nature, and we're talking about some of the most incredible places here on this earth. Whether it's like a clear black night and you can literally see the uh, stars like light up the, the whole night sky. Or things like the Grand Canyon or some other places. If you've ever been to some of these incredible places, you, you don't have to go far. You could just be here in Hong Kong and go on one of these hikes, some of the tallest peaks in here in Hong Kong, and just be able to look out and see everything that was made and created. And you begin to realize how small you are, and you think to yourself, is there this God? Is there someone bigger than me? That's why in Psalm 14, verse 1 in the NIV, it says there's a fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there is no one who does good. Let's just assume, as we go into the second point, and this is something I, I need to kind of share with you, L let's just go in this direction. Let's just assume that there is a God. Whether the arguments are convincing for you or not, but let's just assume that there is a God. But once again, the question still remains. How can an all-powerful all-knowing and all-good God allow evil and suffering in this world. And so one of the things that we have to talk about is now the consideration for suffering. Is there a purpose behind it? I think, first of all, as I share about this, I, I want to be sensitive because as many different phil phil uh, philosophers and a lot of different people who are in the apologetics one of the things that they clearly establish, and I want to establish this as well, is that every single time we talk about the problem of evil and suffering, the thing that we have to be able to understand, there is a logical answer and there is an emotional answer. And I would say majority of the people are looking for the more of the emotional answer because they're going through pain. I, I was just thinking about this uh, as I was preparing this message, 
one of the things that you get to experience being a pastor for about 30-some years is that you get to run into a lot of different types of people. And one of my role is to be a counselor. I, have, I sit down and talk with people. And I will say out of the close to 30 years of doing ministry, from youth ministry all the way to the church in Michigan and church here, I would say I've probably heard a lot of things that I would, even for myself, I would think, how can this happen? How can God allow this to happen? I'll never forget the girl that I was counseling. It was in a cafe. And she was sharing, bawling in tears about how her father raped her. And so she experienced incense. I mean, think about that, incest. I'm counseling people where they've been raped. People who have lost loved ones through cancer without receiving Jesus Christ. People who have gone through accidents or someone they know in family who have gone through accident and now they can, they're physically disabled. And so if you try to understand this on a logical level, you can argue it. But on that emotional level, where your heart is, where it hurts, when you think about loss of loved ones, things have been done unto you, people have sinned against you, that's not easy. And so I'm not going to be here trying to explain this thing about suffering when some of you in this room or you're watching online, I'm wondering if you have gone through things that are so horrendous and so evil and so difficult that for you to even think that a God who is loving and all-powerful and all-knowing will actually allow this to happen to you, I, I will be in your camp and say, it will be very difficult for me to believe in this kind of God. Apart from the grace of God to illuminate his heart and his love for you. This is the reason why I'm going to present it as best as I can in a logical sense. And there's a reason why. Because you have to at least understand in your mind. To understand it in your heart, it's going to take some more time. That's why I want to encourage some of you, as you heard today in, during the announcements, to sign up for a life group. Because sometimes the way you work through those issues of your heart, is, it's not when you're just by yourself. It's when you're in community. And you're around people that are different from you. That people have hurt you before. And you realize, here's a person that reminds you of that person, but they don't hurt you. When you're so afraid, you're so protected because of all the things you've experienced, maybe with your family. Maybe your whole life has been based on a performance mindset. That you didn't get the A. You got an A minus, but you didn't get the A. And your whole worth and value, and even those of you who have done music or sports, Everything has been based on what you do. And you realize you're not enough. You'll never be enough to your mom. You'll never be enough to your dad. And that plays with your mind and your sense of worth. And now you're doing everything, trying to make yourself significant. Or trying to find some meaning. But the more you do it, you realize how empty you are. That's why I want to encourage us as we talk about this. Sometimes the only way we're going to be able to work through this is you have to experience it. 
Where there's hurt, you have to experience healing, the power of God. Where there are lies told to you, you got to experience truth that now is spoken to you because of what God says you, who you are. You cannot do this on your own. So if you haven't signed up for a life group, turn to somebody next to you and say, sign up for a life group. So let me talk about this intellectual reality and this emotional reality. William Lane Craig, in his book, Hard Questions, Real Answers, he writes this. He says, undoubtedly the greatest intellectual obstacle to belief in God for both the Christian and the non-Christian is the so-called problem of evil. So this means that whether you are a believer or not, everyone struggles with this idea of evil and suffering in this world. So logically speaking, a God who is all-knowing, that's omniscient, who is all-powerful, who is omnipotent, who is all-good, who is omnibenevolent, can he exist while there is evil and suffering? And to that I would say, logically speaking, yes. Because God created a world in which we have the freedom to choose. But because of sin in this world, a lot of us, we choose to disobey. And those people who have hurt you have chosen to disobey. So when we live in sin, we hurt ourselves and we end up hurting other people. And this is where a lot of the e evil and the suffering begins to happen. I'm going to show you another video. Once again, these videos are just small little clips of just kind of arguing these points. So I thought just coming from a different voice will help us to understand a little bit. And pretty much in this video, they're talking about the logical problem with the issue of suffering and evil and how that could be answered. So I want to first establish through this video that it is logically consistent and it is possible to have a God who exists and also to have suffering and evil existing at the same time. And then afterwards, what we will do is I'm going to share some Bible verses to kind of remind us of some truth. And then after that, I'm going to go ahead and just invite Pastor Bo up, and we're going to have a, a moderator, and we're going to just answer some of the actual questions that you submitted, uh, I, I think it was like five some weeks ago. And we're going to try to answer. We, we couldn't answer all of them. We just picked the ones that came up frequently. That, that means that more people had questions about those types of questions. So that's why we decided to choose some of those questions. We'll try to go through uh, maybe like four or five different questions as time permits. And afterwards, I want to kind of bring it to a close and just have someone share their own personal stories of experiencing pain and suffering and how they found redemption and hope that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's watch this video together. So dramatic when you have that British English. <laughs> Bankrupt. <laughs> I'm just like, wow, we get it. Can I just encourage us? If, if, maybe we could just give the links to some of these videos, and we'll give it to the leaders, and then you guys can get it from them. And just watch it again more carefully. Listen to it again, and it'll help you to at least accept the logical arguments that a God who's all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good can exist even though there is suffering and evil in this world. So that's the logical reality. What is the emotional? It doesn't feel like it, right? 
If he loves me, why would he do this? Why would I experience this? Why would that stranger do that to me? Why couldn't he stop them? And that's why our hearts are broken. And that's why some of you have hardened your hearts over all these years. Not only towards God, but towards other people. To you, let me just encourage you and say that God does know us. He knows you. And he's watching over us. Believe it or not, it's hard to believe, but he, he knows us. And he knows what has happened to us. And what is happening to us? Psalm 139, verse 1 and 3. Listen to what it says. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. He knows us. Another thing that we're going to have to believe is that God is good. It doesn't feel like it especially with what you're going through, but we have to believe this. Psalm 34, 8a, Alpha, it says this, Oh, taste and see that the, what? Come on, everyone say this. The Lord is good. It's His word. We either believe it or we don't. The prophet Nahum, in chapter 1, verse 7, it says this, so repeat the yellow section. It says, The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And this is where everything comes together. To believe that he is good. To know that he knows you, what you have gone through. And this is the part that I think we have to be able to have faith to believe. Is that he's working things out for our good and for his glory. You know that famous passage in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. Read the yellow section with me. It says this. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I want to read it in a couple other translations so you can get those key ideas about this passage. In the Amplified Version, listen to what it says, and you can read the yellow once again. And we know with great confidence that God, who is deeply concerned about us, causes all things to work together as a plan for good. For those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose or plan and purpose. The Passion Translation says this. So we are convinced that every detail of our lives. Just think about that for a moment. That every single detail of your life is continually what? Woven together. There's a pattern. God, God is in this. Even though he didn't cause that because people have free will to choose. God is going to take all that mess. It always reminds me of like the stained glass, the mosaic. They're broken pieces, but put together in the right way. When the sun shines through it, it creates a beautiful imagery. It's woven together for good. For we are his lovers who have been called to fulfill his design purpose. God has a purpose. Listen to lastly the voice translation. It says this. We are confident that God is able to orchestrate everything so he's conducting he's bringing all these things together to work towards something good and beautiful it doesn't seem like what you're going through is good and beautiful but later on you're going to look back and you realize wow incredible i would have never been able to figure that one out but god is always into what is good 
when we love him and accept his invitation to live according to his plan. That's why I really enjoy what John Piper, I mean, this was probably one of his most favorite, uh, most famous tweeted and retweeted tweet. Uh, because it was so powerful. It spoke to so many people. John Piper, who was a former pastor up in Minnesota and um, in the United States, listen to what he writes. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. So oftentimes, with the three things that we might see, we're like, God, why? But he's doing 10,000 other things that's out of his goodness and working things out in your life. And the question is, can you trust him in the midst of the suffering and the hardships? So at this time, I'm going to go ahead and invite Pastor Bo and Annie to come up forward. So let's give them a, a round of applause as they come up. Uh, those of you who don't know, Pastor Bo is on staff uh, uh, with us here. And uh, he, well, why don't you guys introduce yourself and then. So you guys can, yeah. I'm on staff here. <laughs> um, Just a little bit. Grew up in the U.S. and then came here with the church plan in 2015. Worked for a while um, in IT and then became full-time staff just this year. Okay. Oh, I didn't grow up as a Christian, actually. So my, my family is agnostic. Not, not quite atheist, but agnostic. Doesn't really care whether God exists or not. So and I experienced God uh, personally for myself in my first year of uh, university uh, life, and uh, just since then, it's been an incredible journey. Okay, and Annie is going to be our MC, moderating. Go yeah, ahead, so, Yeah, so my name is Annie. Um, I grew up going to church, actually, but it was in university that I really uh, encountered God personally, and uh, and yeah, and I've come, I came to Hong Kong with our church plant team back in 2015 after studying at the University of Michigan. Okay. So, um, Right now, we're just going to be asking the questions. We looked through a lot. There were a lot of very good questions that all of us have submitted. And we can't answer all of them, but we kind of yeah combed through the ones that came up often. And I think in line with what Pastor said that talked about, about the character of God and uh, consideration for suffering, one of the questions that kept coming up was um, in terms of God's character of um, is God unfair or inconsistent um, if some people's lives are filled with suffering and pain, um, and others might not. I think even, especially recently with COVID-19, with wars around the world and poverty and different things, like, is God unfair or inconsistent in that way? So maybe that's um, one of the questions we can talk about first. Yeah, that's a hard question. <laughs> um, I, I think especially with so many things going on with COVID, with people, you know, whose family members who have passed away, I think that's something that, you know, when, when we approach it from an emotional standpoint, it's just, yeah, there's almost no way that you can answer that question. Um, just to, other than to just grieve with that person, just to show compassion. And I think just to kind of give all these logical arguments is kind of like throwing a brick on them while they're down already, you know? And so, um, but if we were to have to answer that question more logically, I think um, you have to approach it from a couple of different ways. The first one is, if you think about that question, uh, you, you talk about just the whole idea that suffering and pain it's implicit in that question in that God caused the suffering or pain. Right? That's the first uh, implicitly assumed premise of the question. The question is, does God actually cause the suffering or pain that you might experience? 
uh, if it comes from someone else, if it's someone that hurt you, if it, if it was a war that was caused, is that directly caused by God? Or is it God allows some of those things to happen because he gave people free will? So to say that God caused that is a little bit of a fallacy in that sense. And so you have to be a little bit careful when you think about suffering and pain and whether God is the cause of that. If he allows it, that might be a different question. Um, but still, to the second point, you might still wonder, like, okay, how can God still be good if he allows these things to happen, right? How can he still be fair or, or consistent? And I think when you, whenever we talk about the whole concept of fairness or consistency, that presupposes that God or that God must give us something that we want for fairness, right? Because we all have some kind of standard of fairness, and usually what we want is happiness. But there's nowhere in the Bible that says that God exists for our happiness. God exists for himself, for his glory. And when we think of if God has to be fair, then is he fair in the sense where he is promoting and wanting everyone to know him? The, the absolute question, answer to the question is, is yes. But if the question is, is God going to make every single person in this world happy in the way that they want to be happy, then we cannot guarantee that. And of course, God is, quote unquote, unfair when it comes to making everyone happy in the way that they want to be happy. And just, I mean, this is kind of like a personal illustration of this, and it's not related directly to suffering, but I, I don't know, how many of you have older or younger siblings in this room? Okay, a good handful of us. I'm an old, older, older sibling, and I, uh, I hated it when I got treated differently than my younger brother. Amen. And, yes, older <laughs> siblings are always like that, right? And I would always be the guinea pig. I would get kind of tested and all these things. And then whenever my parents found out that something worked, then my brother would get the thing right after that, right? You just get it immediately. He got a phone several years earlier than I did. This was before smartphones even came into existence. We had those like flip phones and stuff like that. Um, but I felt like it was so unfair that my brother got a phone and got all these things before I did. And if I were to think about that, well, then, yeah, I would criticize my parents for being very inconsistent and unloving. In many ways, I did. It was funny because I sat down with my parents one day, and I accused them that you love my younger brother more than you love me. And I got really humble because my mom started breaking down. She's like, no, I love you the same. I love you equally. And I was humble. I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> that was bad. Bad call. But I, I realized in that moment my parents didn't exist just to make me happy for the things that I just wanted. They existed so that I could grow up to be the best person that they wanted me to be, not just for me to have the things that I wanted in comparison to my brother. So again, I know that doesn't answer every question or issue of suffering, but just some thoughts for why God could be quote unquote unfair in our perspective when he might not be unfair in his or God's eternal perspective. Uh, Pastor Seth, was there anything you wanted to share about That's that? That's good. <laughs> we'll try to move along. Yeah, so I think with that, I mean, yeah, the points about God not causing uh, the suffering and pain and even um, uh, what is suffering pain is that, like, maybe sometimes God allows it for our good, but what about when we actually look into the Bible, right? Because we're saying the Bible is true, it's infallible, but in the Bible itself, especially in the Old Testament, we often see that God destroys people, right? Um, and and he, he brings his wrath upon people. And so how can God be loving if he, when the wrath of God actually destroys people, especially as we see in the Bible itself? And so um, we want to ask about that too. Yeah, yeah I, I would say um, 
It's okay, none of this is my own stuff. This is research done online, so all of this, you can find it online. Go look at those resources, watch those videos. Um, I would say this is kind of a two-part question. There's really two questions in this. The first question is, how is the Old Testament God the same as the New Testament God? Because many of us, we read the Old Testament and New Testament, we're like, whoa, Old Testament, there's all this wrath and destruction and hatred, whereas the New Testament, it seems like it's all love and butterflies and fellowship. Um, but actually, that's, it's, it's not true. When you really look at the Bible, you look at the Old Testament, there, there are many passages that talk about how God is love. And in Exodus 34, it talks about, it says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So, so if you tell me that there's nothing about God being loving in the Old Testament, there's some evidence that God is loving and he is kind. If you say that God is only loving and not wrathful or judgmental on the New Testament, then just go look at Jesus' life. <laughs> Why did he have to die on the cross? That is all of the wrath of the Old Testament God put on Jesus in the New Testament. The only reason why we escape that wrath is because it was put on Jesus. And that encourages us to believe in Jesus that much more. And so really the God of the Old Testament is the same as the New Testament. But the second part of that question is how can God be wrathful and judgmental at the same time as loving and good and kind. And I would say it just goes back to think about your parents. Have you ever been punished by your parents ever before? Anyone ever been punished by their parents? Everyone's hands should be up unless you have parents who, you know, totally let you do whatever you want. But those of you who have parents who let you do whatever you want, is that genuinely loving? Is giving someone exactly what they want in that moment, whatever they desire, the very most loving thing that they could do? Probably not. Let's say you as a kid, you want to eat a thousand candy bars. That's not going to be the best for you. Let's say you as a parent, you know, you, your child asks you to play video games 24-7 for the rest of their life. You, I don't know if you've ever read in the news articles people who die from playing video games for too long straight. Like, there are some things that we want that aren't good for us. So for someone to discipline us or punish us is a loving thing to do. And of course, some of us might counter like, well, but destroying people, killing them at the end of the day is, all, you, you might discipline some, someone, kind of slap them on the wrist to get them to change. But how can, you, how can God kill someone? Well, if you, someone, if you have someone who is rebellious their whole life, they never, ever turn back to the parent or the relationship. What ends up happening? That relationship with that parent is severed for the rest of their lives. And hell, or punishment, or wrath, is simply God severing that relationship with that person. Why? Because that person has already rejected all the love and goodness that that parent provides, or in this case, it's God. And so that's one reason why we might think that love and wrath and goodness is not compatible, but in many ways, you cannot have genuine love without punishment, without judgment. Yeah, I think I think that's a little bit kind of what we have to try to understand. I, I think I think we just all have to confess or at least concede to we all have biases. We all have some kind of a premise, and I think this is one of the big issues that we have to try to uh, expose in our own hearts. Because I do believe that a lot of us we think that God is this really all loving God, but one of the things we forget He's also a just God. Because He has to He's holy, so He has to punish sin. He can't just let it go. 
it'll, it'll be like if I were driving and then I was speeding and then I got a, a, a ticket because I, I broke a law. And because of that, I need to get a fine. And so when you think about that, when I stand before the judge, the judge is like, you did something wrong, so the price has to be paid. But this is the beauty of the gospel message. What it says is that you and I, we have all sinned against this holy God. And for him to be just, he has to punish sin. He has to. Or he will not be a just God. And so what did he do? Instead of us paying for it, he sent his son, Jesus Christ. So he was still holy and still just and still loving all at the same time. Because he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins and my sins. Because that should have been our price we should have paid. That was our infraction. That was our sin against this holy God. But Jesus Christ paid that price for us so we don't have to face the consequences. I think talking about punishment, though, uh, like I think when Christians... We, we, because we understand that and we often say like, well, yeah, only those who believe in Jesus can go to heaven and after death, but everyone else is going to hell. I think for people who don't yet believe, it's easy to feel like, oh, that's so arrogant even or condemning or it's really harsh. Like, um, and, and some pre-Christians, people who don't yet believe, it's, it's, they're good-hearted, right? And so how would we respond to that kind of tension that we feel in terms of that? Why are you asking so many hard questions? <laughs> they, they asked uh, the people our church asked. Um, I mean, the first thing is that Christianity is not exclusive. Everyone has an opportunity to believe. It's available to every single person. So if you are, you don't believe, and you're like, why, why, you know, is Christianity so exclusive? The, the, the answer is no. You're welcome to always join. Even if you don't believe and you want to join our church community, you're always welcome to be part of our community. We'll never exclude you. Uh, we will never uh, say, you know, you can't be part of our church. You can't be part of life groups. You're always welcome. You're always able to join us. And if you're still on that process of learning and seeking, we, we hope and encourage you to learn more about Christ, learn more about God so you can get to know him because he's always actually pursuing every single one of them. It's not like he's only pursuing, you know, Pastor Seth, you know, and not me or Annie, right? He's pursuing every single person. He gives us the opportunity to believe. Um, but I think one of the, the challenges is that this the exclusivity really comes in why does it require us to believe in Christ for us to be in heaven, right? Because that's the ultimate, quote-unquote, end destination. And, you know, you can't escape it. As Christians, we can't escape the truth that you must believe in Jesus in order to get to heaven. I, I think there's a passage that I looked up, John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus says that, and the reason why is because, again, like we established before, we're all imperfect. We all fall short in some way, shape, or form. And so for us to be with God, because heaven is not just this destination, right? Heaven is an eternal relationship with God. So for God to be perfect, then whoever's with him also must be perfect. So in order to be with God, we have to be perfect. Just to give you a, just a common illustration, um, if there's any district, city, or country that has zero COVID cases, what must you do before you get into that city? You can't have COVID. Or you have to land there, and then you have to quarantine for three weeks before COVID disappears, before they'll let you into that place. And so we all understand, for you to be in a, in a sublime or pristine environment, you have to be pristine and sublime yourself. And 
That's the same with sin, right? Because we all contain sin in some way, shape, or form, whether it's our actions, behavior, or even our thought life. And so therefore, we must be perfect. And the only way we can be, be perfect is if Jesus' perfection is covering us. And you have to believe in Jesus for that to happen. Um, the second part of that question is, well, but there are a lot of people who do good stuff. There are a lot of people who do good stuff. Why can't people who do good stuff also go to heaven as well? Because they're good in some way, shape, or form. I mean, the, the easy answer to that question is, well, how much good is good enough, right? Because if we're all sinful, then there's, even if you have a little bit of sin, that disqualifies you from being perfect, right? Even if you have a little bit of COVID in your system, can you come in? No, right? If you test positive in any kind of way, they're going to leave you in quarantine or send you to the hospital. Um, but the other way to answer that question is the, the people who ask, oh, why can't I use my good enough in order to be to heaven is you're saying your paradigm or your worldview is that can I not make heaven a merit-based goal? Can I not do enough in order to merit heaven? Right? Why can't merit be a better framework for actually getting into heaven rather than believing in Jesus Christ? Well, the question is, is merit even fair in this world? What if you were born into, um, uh, many of you know, like ISIS uh, from a couple years ago. And it's not as big, but they're still in existence. There's still people who are part of ISIS. Or and Taliban. We, or Taliban, right? So if you were born into ISIS and you were trained to kill and murder and steal, is that fair for that person who was born into that? area for them then they're they're disqualified because they merit nothing is that fair because they were born into it probably not if you are in in sudan or some of these places where they abduct children and they convert them into child soldiers and they train them to rape and to kill and to do all this kind of stuff is that fair so i i think there are a lot of situations i think it's easy for us to use merit base in a kind of developed world, right, where we have white-collar jobs, we live comfortable lives, and all this kind of stuff. But when you look at the vast majority of the world, merit is not necessarily the best framework to promote, quote-unquote, fairness. And actually, the most fair thing is to give every single person the opportunity to believe in Jesus Christ, to cover over the sin of every single person. That's available to you. That's available to us here every single day. That's why there's such a, a huge impetus. There's such a huge... Uh, need for Christians to go and share our faith because there are people who are passing away every single day. And if we don't proclaim, we don't share the, the gospel with them, then we are not doing our loving responsibility of giving everyone an opportunity to know God as well. Yeah. Can, can I just give a challenge to all of you? I think what really comes down to is the uniqueness of Christ. Uh, because it's so, it sounds so exclusive, but it's because it's unique. Check out all the other religions. I, I, in fact, I encourage people to read the Quran, read all these other things, and study other religions. Some of you only know Christianity. That's why, you know, it sounds like you're so narrow-minded. Be able to read other things and realize that every single religion here on this earth, even humanism, that's a religion. Communism is kind of like a religion. I just read an article last night, talked about how they want to recruit more young communists. I'm like, oh, okay. You have to say all these things that you believe in. I'm like, oh, okay. Sounds like a religion to me. But this is my challenge. Every single religion, all it talks about is doing things to reach up to God. 
Christianity is the only one that there says that you cannot do anything to reach God. But God came down to us in the form of a person, Jesus Christ. No other religion claims that God came, died, and rose again from the dead. That's next week. What the? You're gonna, you, you, want, you want to make sure you want to be here for that one. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why there's so many evidences, overwhelming evidence, that there's a resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's why, in some sense, it sounds so exclusive, but it's more of the uniqueness of Christ that's far different from anyone else. And then with the John chapter 14, verse 6, where he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If he says he's the truth, he's the only way and the only way to life, then those are exclusive claims. Then we have to say, is what he's saying true? Or is he a liar or this crazy lunatic? Or is he Lord? According to C.S. Lewis and many of these other apologists who have argued that. He has to be one of those. Either he's lying or he's a lunatic or he's Lord. And if he's Lord, then we have to submit our lives to him. Thanks. I think that that um, is really helpful for us as we're thinking about how we answer um, and respond to pre-Christians. But on the other hand, I think we just have one time for one more question. But on the other hand, as we are engaging with pre-Christians or people, we know that not all of these arguments or these um, intellectual like theories will really persuade people. So when we do encounter someone who has really experienced pain and suffering, or maybe they're just going through a really hard time now, what is like the best way to engage in finding the balance between, okay, I want to, you know, help you to understand um, who God really is, but also right, right now they are going through a lot of pain and suffering. Maybe some of them, it's unexplainable. Um, so how would we engage as Christ followers? pray. <laughs> That's the easy answer, right? Um, I would say, I mean, for someone who's actually going through something in that moment, and I, I think probably the worst thing that you could do is show them this video, right? And say, here's the logical argument for why suffering is, is in your life. Uh, it's just a very unloving thing to do. And, and another thing is just one thing that, you know, we've learned over the years in terms of just experiences. Just don't ever tell people that you totally understand exactly what they're going through, because you don't. Every single person's suffering is totally different. And so the best thing that you can do is just be for them, be there for them, just to comfort them. Just to, sometimes, literally, just your, your presence there as you're silent, just comforting them is one of the most encouraging things to do. And just to pray for them as best as possible. I don't know if there's anything else. That's good. And, and yeah, hopefully, as we're going through this series of relationship with the lost, it is at the end of, end of the day about a relationship that we're building with pre-Christians too. And so, um, hopefully, that we can keep, yeah, understanding and learning more in that way. Yeah, too. can I just add on to that? Because I, I, what you said about relationship too is, the, I think the biggest biggest testimony, and that was I wasn't necessarily going through suffering, but the the thing that really convinced me that God was real in the midst of everything that was going on in this world is that there was genuine love that people could show one another. And right, that's, that's what it says in John 13, right? It says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. And I think just as you're engaging with someone who's suffering and going through a lot of stuff, by the way that you love them, by the way that you share, you care, by the way that you're willing to stick by them when no one else has anything else to say, I think that will really communicate a really powerful message that that is God, that is a supernatural love that can't come apart from the love of Christ. I think that will point people back to the right way, so. Amen. As we close out uh, this morning, I wanted to invite one of our sisters to come and share her testimony. Um, I just recently heard about it, and I, I really felt that it was uh, it's going to be powerful just to encourage you of all how God 
took something that was bad and somehow in her life and God used that for something that's greater. So let's just give it up for uh, Reiko. Come on up, Reiko. And then we can share. Church. I'm Reiko. I am a rising fourth year at HKUST, um, and I'm part of Drip and Life Group this summer. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah crazy. What I'm about to share with you guys is something that I'm still kind of processing through, um, and it's mm, it's a bit hard for me to share. And I'm it's okay. I have tissue. <laughs> I brought it. <laughs> It's a bit hard for me to share, and um, but I just wanted to be able to boast in what God has done and how He's carried me through this journey of healing. Um, and yeah, I'm going into my fourth year of uni, and it's just crazy how, um, again, God has changed my life for the better. Um, so a bit of background about myself. Um, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to Christian school, and I went to church almost every single Sunday. And growing up, I thought um, familial bonds are like invincible, especially in the Christian um, family. And I had read books about, you know, divorce. I'd read books about, you know, parents separating and abuse and stuff like that, um, which is why I was in utter disbelief when my father left my family when I was 10. And I didn't see it coming. And I was just like, what is going on with my life? My whole life was like crashing. Um, and What's worse is that I couldn't share it with my friends at school and because my mom was like, no, 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 we shouldn't share it to people because, you know, what would they think of us? And so I couldn't share that with the people that I was surrounded with, the friends that I was surrounded with. And I had to constantly lie to my friends about, you know, where's my dad, like when they come over for sleepovers or why he didn't show up to like concerts or sporting events. And I just had to be like, oh, he's really busy with work. Um, so as I lived in a dichotomy, I started to idolize the image of this perfect image of a family. And I did everything I could to restore it by being a good daughter, trying to maintain harmony with people, with my parents. I felt like um, my mom was indirectly putting pressure on me um, to be this perfect person without flaw. And the fact that my dad left our family was a flaw in itself and I thought that was my biggest flaw and yeah I had to be perfect and beyond perfect because I didn't want people to be disappointed in me I thought that by earning their approval that they would acknowledge me and then hence not leave me um, which um, later on in high school manifested in um, doing well in school with my grades um, being the best at sports and doing a lot of other extracurricular activities um, high school was like the breaking point of my life, um, especially in my senior year of high school when my dad passed away. So my dad left and then he passed away. Uh, and I started to question, really started to question God why, why he would inflict this upon me. Like, what did I do wrong? You know, like I didn't even want this to happen. I didn't even want, didn't even do anything for this to happen. And also I never really got proper closure with my dad and um, to talk about these problems and I felt really abandoned I really felt left in the dark um, and ultimately I just felt like no one really cared for me 
Um, I felt like um, every I became a really judgmental person. Um, I started to blame everyone else around me, and I started to close myself off from people. Um, and so I built this like facade of this like cheery good girl, um, but really I was broken and angry at my mom. And I resented her for all this emotional baggage that I couldn't process and that I couldn't even lash out because, you know, she didn't let me share. Um, and so this was all the baggage that I carried into Hong Kong going into university. Um, and I wanted to go to Hong Kong because I wanted a fresh start. I wanted to change my life for the better. But yet I still struggled with people pleasing. I still struggled um, in other contexts. And maybe these tendencies were even more amplified here in university. Um, and that, beca that began my conflicts with my mom. Um, I was so angry at her with like every little detail that she did. And I thought she was trying to control me. I thought she was trying to by like questioning all my decisions and even like questioning why I'm going to all of these church events and, and staying really late until like 11 p.m. and stuff like that. Um, so thinking that my mom was the source of all of my problems, I started distancing myself from her and tried not tried to communicate really minimally to her. Um, and so this was around my second year of university, and this is when COVID hit. Uh, and this during this time, I had a really huge fight with my mom, and some people from my life group were back then would probably know of this fight. Um, but basically, long story short, I wanted to stay, and she wanted me to go home. Um, but I was in a state where I didn't want to listen to my mom and our conversations never matched each other and we never listened to each other and what we were going through. And I was impatient, I lashed out at her. Um, at that time I thought it was, I was in the most hopeless state. I thought our relationship would never be restored. Um, I thought that this would be the state of our relationship forever um, and that I was just bound in this cage forever. Um, but this, I think this was the turning point um, and God really healed not only my my heart, but my mom's heart as well. And back in Japan, we had a lot of conversations and it was a slow progress of just, you know, fighting, crying and just hearing each other. Um, and we were able to really have that space to address our problems um, and emotional baggage over the years from what happened to our family and what we experienced. So fast forward to a few weeks ago, and it was during the Relationship with Other Sermon Series, and we are talking about um, the topic of forgiveness. Um, and that really struck me hard because uh, that made me acknowledge for the first time my unforgiveness towards my mom. Um, it didn't really make sense to me that the person that I love and care so much is the very person that I harbor the most unforgiveness towards. Um, but I wanted to, I felt the urge to talk to my mom later that evening, and so I did. And in our video call, my mom actually started talking about forgiveness without any prompting. Um, um, and she shared with me that earlier in this week, um, God had spoken to her and he told her to pray for me, that to pray that I will be able to forgive. But she didn't know what I needed to forgive or who I needed to forgive. Um, and so she prayed, she reflected, and she realized that probably it was her, that she was the reason why, why I felt so bitter towards her, um, and that she realized that she might have put a lot of indirect pressure on me when really what she was trying to do was to care and love for me, but that made me feel closed off, that made me feel really um, angry towards her. Uh, 
and she actually apologized to me in that conversation. Um, and it was not so much about the apology that I was floored by, but I was just really floored by just God's goodness um, in my life. Um, um, how he really just relentlessly pursued after me and my mom um, and really fought for our relationship. Um, and that um, he really reminded us how he never gives up on us and he's so good in this way. Um, and even in our brokenness, even in our weaknesses, that he will never ever give up on us. And that not only am I being healed from my scars in the past, but my mom is also being healed as well. And being able to overcome some of the fears that she may have faced as well. So I think this is really a testament of how God is always chasing after me to bring me back to Him regardless of how much I fail, how much I run away from Him, and how much I want to give up myself because He never gives up on me. And God took all of my hardships in the past to slowly mend the relationships between me and my mom by restoring my image of what family looks like. Um, reminding me that even if my earthly father was not the best, <laughs> that my heavenly father loves me for who I am um, and will never stop loving me. And even though I don't remember my earthly father's love, um, that God's love fills that hole in me and heals me. And like I said in the beginning, it's not easy for me to share this testimony. And I still find it hard to talk to my mom and to completely forgive her um, but I want to believe and I want I want to believe that God has the power to change my heart um, just as he has mended it over these past few years and I want to be able to depend on him and to trust him more and trust in his timing because I know he'll be there for me as he has in the past thank you thank you Thank you, Rachel, for sharing that. It's amazing how God could take something that's not only tragic or sad or the hurts in a person's life, and then when you encounter Jesus Christ, he could turn that around. And I believe he could not only do it for Rachel, he did it in my life, he did it in so many other people's lives. If you stick around for baptism, you'll hear more stories about those kinds of things. And God can do that. Uh, I want to take this time and close out here and just try to just try tie all the little knots and just bring everything together to make sense. I, I love C.S. Lewis. If some of you are genuine seekers or if, even if you're a believer and you want to strengthen your faith, uh, I want to really encourage you to read Mere Christianity. Uh, it, it's, it's one of those books you got to just get your hands on. It's a classic. It shares a lot because uh, C.S. Lewis was an atheist. He didn't believe in this God. He didn't believe in Jesus Christ. But he went through things in his life where he realized that there's a plausibility that God does exist. As he began to look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was overwhelming evidence. And so listen to what he writes as a former atheist. He says this. He says, thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out 
to be too simple. If there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would only be without meaning. And I think many of us, we live in this darkness. And God right now is trying to show you a light. So with your eyes, you can actually see. It's not physical eyes, but actually spiritual eyes. That's why what we talked about today, it is literally the gospel that we shared with you. That here is the God of the universe who designed all things, created all things. He created you in your mother's womb, brought you into this world. And because he loved you and he loved the people here on this earth, he allowed free will, a choice, the ability to choose to be given to you. And in that moment of that choice, as you know, all throughout history, people have made some bad choices. You've made some bad choices. I've made some bad choices. And there's consequences to it. There's pain to that. There's suffering to that. But if there's anyone who understands pain and suffering, that's God's Son, Jesus Christ. Because He came into this world, lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. We cannot earn salvation. We cannot try to merit salvation. But He lived that perfect life on our behalf. So when He died on the cross, when God punished all the sins of the world and laid His wrath on His Son, Jesus Christ, you will realize in that moment, justice, love, forgiveness, all those things came together because God punished His Son on our behalf so we will not die, but we'll have eternal life. I pray that you'll come back next week as we talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and where our lives will be once we die. We want to talk about destiny. But in the meantime, can I encourage us? that today you can make that decision to get to know more about who God is and maybe today is a decision to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's why let me give us some next steps as we close out here. First of all is this. Explore the truths of Christianity. Don't be scared. Go ahead and check out other religions. I always say go check out other religions. Like, <laughs> because we believe it's the truth, nothing else can stand next to Christianity. That's why I'm confident if you check out other religions, you realize that the uniqueness of Christ outweighs every other religion. And I'm going to put that to you as a challenge. Go explore Christianity. Once again, we have all these different websites that you can look at if you have more questions. The second thing is this, empathize with others. There are people who are suffering that are sitting next to you or even in this room. Some of you have never gone through what they've gone through, but learning how to empathize is, but I do know what it feels like when I'm hurt. I do know what it feels like when I'm uncertain of the future. And so learning to empathize with others, praying for them as Pastor Bo was sharing, and being there for them. Those are simple things of learning how to empathize with people. The third thing is this, explain from your experiences. I think too often we try to get all these arguments down, and while it is good, there's nothing more powerful than a life transformation. Share from your experience. Share from your life how God is still working on you. Some of you haven't figured everything out yet, and that's okay. To say, I'm on this journey with you. I want to know more. 
to be able to share that experience with others. And the last thing I would say is embrace the unknown. You're not God. I'm not God. None of us. So that means that he's probably doing 10,000 other things that you have no clue about. But you got to trust him. So embrace that. Even though right now your life must be hard and difficult for you, but will you just embrace the unknown and say, I'm going to trust the unknown future? As in the words of the famous uh, Corey Tamboon, she said, I'm going to trust my unknown future to a known God. Give your life to Jesus. Trust in him and let him guide you through the different things you're going through. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.